Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They have 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system, and it'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's www.CyclePump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Coming up on today's episode, we've got the anatomy of a rescue, one we were involved with ourselves. We got to use some first aid, some satellite communication gear, and we got some lessons to talk about as well. We're also going to speak with Spencer Conway, who's doing a circumnavigation of South America for another series he's doing for television. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tack. Zoe Cano. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ruff. Jeremy Krieger. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. This is Nathan Millward. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Well, to kick off today's show, I'm going to start with IMS Products. IMS Products has been around since about 1976, and they're probably best known for their fuel tanks. If you're a racer, if you're an off-road racer, you know IMS. You've seen their labels everywhere because they're all over the race circuits. Most riders end up using IMS Products for their fuel tanks and their, their fuel cans for refilling their bikes, etc. But now they're making foot pegs, and the foot pegs are made for us adventure motorcyclists. I'm holding in my hands right now a gorgeous set of foot pegs made by IMS. These ones are called Core. Now, I mounted a set of these pegs on my bike last weekend. And although you're going to hear in this episode, I didn't get to ride as much as I was planning on riding because of the incident we're going to talk about today. But it was enough to let me know these pegs made a huge difference. They add leverage to the bike. They give more support for your foot. I mean, you've really got to see them. If you haven't actually tried wider pegs on your bike, I'm telling you, you're missing out. Because this is the first time I've tried it on my bike. And it's like, wow, it's, it's a whole new world. That extra leverage allows you more control over the bike, um, a, a better purchase for your foot while you're standing. These are really high quality pegs made from cast certified 17-4 stainless steel, certified heat treating. I mean, they're really, these are top notch pegs. You know that feeling when you're holding something that you you know it's high quality, the, the feel, the look of it, the whole bit, 
these things are just beautiful. Drop by their website, www.imsproducts.com. And anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Shall we begin? Shall we begin? Shall we begin? Oh, shall. A while back, we did an episode calling for help from above. That episode was about emergency communicators for remote areas. You know, when you're beyond cell range and away from the mainstream of things, how will you be able to get search and rescue to come and help you or anyone to come and help you for that matter? And among other devices, we talked about the most common ones that you see in the in the outback. That's the DeLorme inReach and the Spot satellite communicator. We talked about the options for each and the differences between the two units, etc. It was a pretty extensive episode that we did. After that episode aired, we were offered the use of uh, InReach Explorer, which is the, the best unit they have from InReach Canada. And at the same time, Spot sent us a brand new Spot Gen 3 to replace our old one. We had the Gen 1, the original one, when they first started the service. So now we had these two units. For the summertime, from June to October, Elizabeth and I went off on an adventure, and we took both units with us. We were doing our own explorations and traveling into remote areas. We explored, we filmed, we camped, not to mention produced this show. And thankfully, we didn't require either unit for any type of emergency. However, we did begin using the inReach to communicate with our children when we were in remote places. And the first time it happened, we were in a spot that took us much longer to get through. The trail was much more difficult. I mean, exceptionally difficult to get through. We're by ourselves. We have to go slow. And we realized we're not going to get out to cell service that day at all. And I think we were already a day behind at that point as far as communicating with anyone. So we started to worry a little bit about the kids. And we decided, okay, we'll send them a message let them know that we're okay through the inReach, which we did. And they responded immediately and everything was fine. And we sat there at the campfire that night and talked it over and we realized just how incredible that two-way texting was. And at the time we said, it's well worth the money, <laughs> you know, the, the extra money that you would have to spend for it. It was incredible to be able to communicate with people and just not worry about it. On the other end, our kids were satisfied that we were safe and they'd heard from us. They knew what we were doing. They knew where we were because when we send a message out, it also tags a map that would show our exact location so they can even tell where we're camping. Although we didn't tell them that we're tent camping in grizzly bear country with bears around us, but that's another story. And occasionally we would use the spot as well. We would send the check-in message with the spot and it would diligently send out the pre-programmed message to our list of contacts that we've all done in advance. Now, the spot is a one-way. So you're just sending it out saying that we're fine and you have no way to tell that they've read the message, etc. cetera. Uh, it does give you an indicator from the satellite itself that the satellite received the message and then you assume from that point that the message has been sent through properly and that someone has received it. But you don't get any feedback from the person that you've sent it to. But it was the inReach that became sort of our, our go-to communicator for remote areas. And it worked very well, allowing us to send and receive text messages, emails. Uh, you know, we'd send it and get a message back. It was really important. We really saw the value of it. The device itself, the inReach Explorer, has a built-in interface that allows you to type out the message on the device. The downside is you have to select each letter 
by itself. And here's how you do it. You've got a virtual keyboard that you're looking at on the screen. And to move the cursor around that virtual keyboard, you use your thumb on a four-way rocker. If you've ever programmed a GPS, you know what I'm talking about. You rock it around until you finally get over the letter and then you press enter for that one letter and then you have to move to the next one. I'm telling you, it's tedious to say the least. If it was the only way to send and receive messages, I don't think we would have hardly used the inReach because it's just too labor intensive and frustrating if you make a mistake to go back and correct it. It's just incredibly frustrating to use. Fortunately, lucky for us, they have an app that works with it. The app is called EarthMate and you download it to your smartphone. Now, I have no idea why it's called EarthMate and not inReach, but that doesn't matter at this point. The app connects the smartphone via Bluetooth to the InReach satellite device. And then you have a far more sensible user interface. It's just like sending a normal text or an email on your phone. You open up the app, you see that it connects to the device, you type your message, you say send, it sends the message off. When the person receives the message, they get your message just as you typed it, as well as a, a link that will show exactly where you are on a map, which is really important and it can be quite informative for the person receiving the message. And then they send a message back to you and you receive it. It's, it's really a great system. The inReach device itself has this little beep that it gives you when the message goes up to the satellite, sort of an upward tone. And then it'll give you another beep when the message comes back down from the satellite and let you know there's a message there. Then you go to your app, you open up the app, you wait till it connects, and then you read the message and just respond to it. It's really great. Now, I wouldn't say it's necessarily for the total non-techie person because sometimes this connection with Bluetooth, at least what we've found, doesn't work flawlessly. You have to go into the app and then you, you have to check to see that it's not connected or if it is connected. And if it isn't, you have to go down to uh, the connect thing. Anyway, it's just, it's a bit of a, a, a mess around sometimes. Not a real big deal at all. It's not difficult, but it's not super simple either. The inReach and the Spot are the two most common devices you'll find for remote travel. They're both handheld units. They're powered by batteries. They're, they both are in rugged, waterproof cases. The inReach has a rechargeable battery built in, while the Spot Gen 3 takes four AAA lithium batteries. Uh, and I understand you can use rechargeable batteries in that as well, but you know, you'd charge them in a separate device. The real differences, the main differences between the two, as far as I'm concerned, are these. Number one, the inReach is two-way texting, as I just explained to you. Sending messages out, getting messages back. So as a communicator, it works really well. The spot is outgoing only. Now, it does have an indicator, like I said, when you send a, a check-in, what's called a check-in, which is just you sending your, your message saying, I'm fine and this is where I am, you will get a, a little indicator on the device saying the satellite received your message, which is really important because the biggest thing with any satellite communicator is that it connects with that satellite, that it has a clear view of the sky and it connects. And you need some sort of way to tell that it's done that and both units do it. Now, the second and I think the most important thing between the two, well, maybe not the most important, but certainly important for all of us that are working on a budget, is the cost, both to purchase and operate. The inReach is considerably more expensive, and you can understand why. It's a two-way communicator as opposed to a one-way communicator. Now, we wanted to get a good feel for both of these units, which is why we took them and used them all summer. But like I said, we did not use them in an emergency. Now, that's important because... It's one thing to use something in theory or under ideal conditions or even a simulation, but it's quite another 
when having to deal with an emergency, when you have the pressure of something real happening, and now you need to communicate, you need to use this unit in such a way that it's going to be the quickest, most efficient, and then plus all of these real world things going on around you. So I think it's completely different. Anyway, the summer passed. We returned the InReach unit, which was on loan from InReach Canada. And just days later, unbeknownst to me, we were about to experience the perfect scenario for a satellite communicator in action with me right there. A motorcycle wipeout, a broken leg, beyond cell range and well off the beaten track. So our story starts out just like I think they all do, you know, just another day. It was supposed to be going for a ride with a friend, Brent Henry, but little did we know that it would end up in a serious injury that would not only put our first aid training to work, but as well as our organizational skills. And Brent, he just lives up the road. Yes, and I live on Quadra Island, BC, and uh, I'm a driver by trade. I also uh, do some maintenance at a school here on the island. And uh, my interest is in uh, off-the-pavement motorcycling. Really interested. I've always been interested in travel. So touring bikes or some bike that was could allow you to conveniently get around, maybe do some camping, had always interested me. And in the past, he's done backpacking trips? Yeah. Yeah, I've done a lot that way. I've actually done a lot of cycle touring, which probably, uh, you know, is very... Uh, very similar to motorcycle touring, just slower, and I still enjoy it. I mean, I like the speed and just the uh, the simplicity of uh, bicycle touring. But, you know, I'm 62 now, and the nice thing with the motorcycle is uh, you can cover a lot more ground. and uh, You don't have to pedal it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I don't have forever to see the world on a bicycle. So, And I'm uh, my situation is I get a lot of time off because I work for the school board. So uh, I'm close to retirement now, and... Uh, yeah, I just love traveling with a motorcycle. So a bit of the backstory here is that uh, Brent has bought a brand new Good KLR 650. The, uh, my previous bike was a KLR, and I'd taken it across the country and was exploring up in Labrador and uh, James Bay and the Maritimes. And I just decided it was getting a little long in the tooth. And this time of the year, they lower the prices. So I bought this bike in the fall. And of course, this fall for us here, we've had just crappy weather. Well, crappy weather meant that Brent didn't rush getting his motorcycle ready, transferring the parts from his old bike onto his new bike. He took a a long time. Oh, I think well over a month. But in any case, he'd only ridden it once really on the street since he bought it. And now this is going to be his first day out. And this was the first day of off-roading. This was the first day really of going and finding some trail. So Quadra Island, I always like to say, if you look at it from overhead, it's, it's sort of the shape of Africa. And that bottom part is where everyone lives. As you go up to the northern part, very few people are there. There's some roads there that are logging roads, etc. And the odd trail. Well, of course, that's where we go to ride. We get away from things and get into some more challenging terrain. So, of course, that's where we headed that day. Now, we're not going out unprepared. We tend to ride very prepared. We like to have all of our things with us in case we have a breakdown, flat tires, or if we even had an emergency. Now, we're pretty prepared, right? I mean, you've got your what on your bike? Well, I have enough stuff that if we had to, we could do an emergency bivy. Uh, we had a hot thermos with us, I think each of us, and, uh, you know, some snack foods. I've got all the tools. I can do a uh, uh, beyond minor repairs, change tires. Um, I think I had a front tube with me. 
some first aid equipment, warmer clothing, um, full rain gear, and uh, we also carry some safety equipment. I've had, uh, for some time now, I've been using a GPS, but I've also first started with a spot, and now I'm using a um, DeLorme InReach SE. And that proved to be invaluable. So we packed up our gear and headed off, and it started just like any other one of our riding days does. And we ended up going up to the top of the island to the spot where the the road goes no further. We turned around there, and we headed back down a little bit, and then went into where we were heading for some off-road sections, into some logging roads, etc. And it's quite a a convoluted route, and we're about um, 10 kilometers off the main road which pretty much dead ends there, but the main road is, is just another dirt road that heads back to the road that takes you down to the southern part of Quadra Island. And it's at that point that we ended up running into a problem. We had got to the end of the logging road, we went as far as we could, and then we turned around and we started to head back. Now, Brent and I ride together a fair bit, so we just take turns. You know, one will lead for a bit, and then the other one leads for a bit. That's right, yeah. I think you suggest I take the lead, and uh, I headed off. I was on a new bike, which was fairly similar to my old bike. Um, And the other thing that was really interesting was I decided that with this new bike, I was going to make it more off-road. So I had far more aggressive tires. Mm, that's right. And they were feeling really good on the mucky stuff. Uh, they were basically street legal knobbies. These are uh, the, the Mitas Enduro on the back, which is very similar to a Continental TKC80. And on the front, I have a Michelin T63, which is, again, similar to the Continentals for people who know the Continentals. And it was great in the squishy stuff. They just held really well. And so we were heading back, and there were a number of water bars and... Uh, Something along the way, I just, all that morning, I was really enjoying it because I was finally out, right? All that work on the bike, and uh, we had had a, a break in the weather, and I was really enjoying it, but it's funny when I look back at it now, and I felt sometime along the ways that I was not quite in the zone, and and uh, but everything went well. You know, we just were going over the water bars, you know, and approached them, going down slowly and powering out. The water bars that Brent's referring to are sort of a way of deactivating the roads here in in one sense for the logging roads. They'll take the spots where the water would otherwise run across the road or run down the road and erode it, and they'll dig a ditch straight across the road. There's no warning for the ditch or anything. They tend to be um, reasonably shallow in some cases, uh, you know, maybe a foot and a half across, and then a dip going down maybe a foot. So it's not a formidable thing, but if you hit them fast, it's like hitting those, those speed bumps, those really wicked speed bumps. It can do some serious damage. And there was this little one. It was this little innocuous water bar, maybe, I can't remember, maybe a foot and a half wide yeah, by a foot deep. Like it was a small one. And I was riding along. And because I hadn't been off the bike for a bit, my wrists were getting a little sore from uh, standing up. So I was sitting down in this section for a little bit just to have a little break. And I didn't notice the water bar. I was probably only going, I would say, 15 to 20 fast. I think you shifted to second gear. Yeah. I think I remember that. It was that. a straight section, and I had shifted up. If I remember correctly, I think you were starting to accelerate. Yeah, and the, and the thing was, in my mind, too, I'm breaking in a new bike. So you've got on top of this, it's kind of a weird mindset, but you've got they're always telling you when you take out the bike to change the RPMs. Mm-hmm. Don't stay in one. I mean, for 10 seconds, it doesn't matter, but that's... That's probably part of it, too, and because you're, I wasn't driving it probably 
the exact same way as I would have the old bike. Mm-hmm. Now I'm right behind Brent and I'm standing on my peg. So I have a full view of what's going on. I can see that he's going to go into this ditch, the water bar, and he's going to hit it fairly fast. And I didn't notice it until the last couple of seconds. Hit the brakes, tried to slow down. And I guess what I went through is the front wheel sort of bounced. And uh, I turned off to the left, lost control. And I think what may have happened, it's, it's hard for me to remember exactly. But because I was holding on to the bars and sitting down, I probably blipped the throttle a bit. And as I went over to the left, my left foot touched the ground and the toe grabbed turned it around, and then as I went over, the weight of the bike went on the foot, and that's where the damage happened. So I'm right behind him. I can see exactly what happened. I watched him go through it. I watched the bike go down. He's laying sort of face down with his his leg stuck underneath the bike. I park my bike. I get off of it. I go over, and I ask him if he's all right. And the funny thing was, I said to you, I I don't know. It could be broken. Very calmly. I don't see it. It was okay. And I said, okay, well, let's see. You know, and I lifted the bike up and said, can you get out? And you you slid yourself out. And that was fine. And and then I said, you know, I don't think it is broken. And you said, that's good because it it doesn't doesn't look look good. (laughs) Because it still did off the one side. The knee rotated and the foot didn't. Right. And and, and then I I can't tell about your pants. I remember asking you, where's your knee? You know, and and then I reach over and feel for your knee and I look at your foot and think, that just doesn't look right. You know, and I think we tried to align it gently and it just flopped over and we realized that's it. Yeah, it sort of just started to tilt over and you said, I didn't do that. Right then. Uh, Yeah, yeah, you said, that's it. (laughs) So here's the situation now. When you are mobile, you, you can't imagine what it's like to be immobile. Yeah. It sounds ridiculous, but it's absolutely true. Anybody's broken a bone knows this for you certain. You can take all the first aid courses, as you know. We're both very well trained over our past histories in first aid. And if you haven't been the victim, you don't know. So, you don't have it firsthand. And all of a sudden, you're incredibly immobilized. You're just not able to do the simplest thing. So here you are, sitting in the dirt. The ground's wet. Everything's like saturated. This is the yeah. West Coast in the wintertime. And we just had record rainfalls last month. So everything's good and wet. You're sitting there beside your bike. There's broken bits off your bike. Uh, at that point, I didn't know what they were. I figured there was some damage there. And we have to assess the situation. Now, it's not a big deal. Luckily, we're both outdoors people. We both have experience, like you said, with first aid. We've both been wilderness guides. So, you know, you've got two people who are, are used to dealing with situations. And you're, we've ridden together quite a bit. Right. So, so, we, so we, we know each other. Each other. We yeah. have the rapport. But the difference was you're all of a sudden the victim. That's yep. new to you. So I'm looking at what do we have for reasons. At this point, we have to start looking at our resources and trying to figure out how we're going to handle this. Clearly, we have something major here. Brent can't ride his bike out. He's going to need to have an ambulance come, search and rescue come, or we're going to have to get him out ourselves. Now, for tools, what we have is I have my spot now because remember I'd said we just returned the inReach to inReach Canada four or five days before this. So I have my spot, which gives me a certain amount of connectivity, and then I've got a cell phone. I immediately go to the cell phone. There's no signal. When I first turned it on, I think there was one bar, and then it disappeared. So I've assumed that was a remnant from earlier when it had a signal at one point. So uh, the option here is is to look at the buttons on the spot and figure out, okay, what do I want to do? Here's my options. If I was to press 911, That's going to bring emergency services, which because of where we were, would have likely been search and rescue. They probably would have came over from Campbell River, which is a ferry ride away. It would have been quite an ordeal. We're talking hours and a lot of people, a lot of of equipment, the whole bit. I mean, this is a big deal. 
just to get Brent out to the road, which then they probably would have transferred him to ambulance. Then they would take him to the ferry. And then when the ambulance gets off the ferry, they would transfer him to another ambulance, which would then take him to the hospital. Now, the other option is to use the help button on the spot. Now, don't forget, all the spot buttons are pre-programmed. In other words, when you program this help button, you do it in advance. You put a list of contacts, email addresses, or text messages that you want, or or really basically phone numbers that you want to send it to, and a pre-programmed message that I wrote months ago. In this case, it would say that something along the lines of, I need help, don't panic, it's nothing life-threatening, but um, you need to come and get me. So if I press that, what happens is Elizabeth, who's at home, will get this message that I need help. There'll be nothing else other than the location of where I am. Yeah. So if I press that, that's search and rescue coming. So so the thought process with that was, well, it isn't me in the emergency. And to get Beth alarmed and not even know, is she supposed to come and get me or how is she going to find me, et cetera? Because we're in logging roads that are new. They're not shown on maps. They're not on topographic maps. That's right. um, when she gets the message from that device, it's just going to show our actual physical location. It's up to her to try and figure out how do I get into this spot? What road have they taken? Have they taken a trail? She has no idea because we're not predictable. <laughs> it's as yeah. simple as that when we go out, right? It's not like we stick to roads necessarily. Then we started talking it over and I also have my cell phone and I had one bar signal for a second and then it went away. So I don't know if it was just a a leftover from when I was in in an area, but so we talked it out and we thought, okay, well, what do we do here? You know, do do you want to sit there while I go and make the, the cell phone call? But then you remembered. Well, I was probably in a little bit of shock at that point because I, I don't know if you remember it. I decided to lay on the ground mm-hmm. because I've had experiences before where I've hit a bone or something in a jarring blow and I, things have gone silvery. You know, I didn't know I was going to faint. Yeah. So I was lying there and eventually we got up to a semi-sitting position against the bike. Mm-hmm. And we found, uh, you asked if I had something I could sit on. And I carry a pad under my uh, top uh, rack bag. So I was on that. So I was in a good position there. And then all of a sudden I remembered, well, I've got my inReach, <laughs> which is <laughs> still subscribed. Which completely changes things all of a sudden. Yes. That gives us another option of something that we can do. Now we could organize a rescue on our own. because So this is all part of, you know, looking at what you've got in an emergency and deciding what your plan of action is going to be, rather than just running off with your cell phone in your hand and trying to make a phone call with a signal that doesn't exist, you know, trying to search for a place where you're going to get some cell service. So it's important to, in my mind and everything that I've learned, it's important to go over your resources first. I mean, like they say, the first thing you do when you're lost, just stop and, and assess the situation. What have I got with me? go through your pack, those sorts of things. It's, it organizes and centers yourself. But here we've got some logistical problems that we, we want to consider because we have the options. He, Brent is not in a life-threatening position at that point. He's fine. He, yes, it looks like he has a broken leg, but we have our choices of how we want to handle this and what might be the most convenient, most comfortable for Brent and, and the easiest to do. The bike, I mean, that's a minor thing. We can shove it off to the side and worry about it later. It's the extraction of Brent with just one good leg at this point and a a foot that wants to flop around. So what we want to do is we want to get Elizabeth to bring up the Jeep. And we've talked it over and we've decided that's going to be our best method. We'd rather not call 911 because we think it's going to be a huge long wait and it could be quite a a, a thing getting them to actually find us. I mean, they should find us fairly quickly, but it could end up being an ordeal. Whereas if we handle it ourselves, we can get Elizabeth to bring our Jeep up, which we know has a first aid kit in it, a, a really full 
full-on first ca- first aid kit. So we have a splint and everything. We can get them all ready, and we can transport them to the hospital directly in one vehicle. No messing around, no changing vehicles, etc. So that's what we decided to do. Now, with this new information that Brent has his in-reach, well, all of a sudden, it gives us two-way communication. It completely changes the picture. I don't have to leave the situation. I can stay right there with Brent and communicate. And that's what I do. Um, Brent gives me or tells me where his in-reach is. I pulled it out. I put it uh, beside my cell phone and opened the app, which I had still synced to the old in-reach that I had that, I, like I had said, I'd already returned. So I had to do a few things with Bluetooth. I have to, you know, disconnect the old connection, make a new connection between the devices and and get the communication going. But before I did that, I decided, I, I thought at first I would just use the interface on the in-reach. And I started to type out the message. Well, the message that I, I typed out to begin with, the first message I sent said, Brent needs to, uh, something along the lines of Brent needs a ride out. You have to come and get him. And I sent that off to Beth as an initial message to get things going because I thought I might have to mess around with my phone for a little bit to get the thing connected. So Elizabeth, she's at home. She gets the message. I had just sat down on my computer and saw an email message come in and at the same time heard my, my phone ding. Oh, and, and this is Elizabeth Martin, my wife and our producer and a voice you've probably never heard in the show before. And in the message, it said that Brent needed to be picked up. So at that point, I I knew that something was up and I assumed that it was probably a breakdown. So I started to get ready. After that, um, more messages came in and that's when it was explained to me that Brent had broken his leg. So I knew it was a little bit more urgent. Now, lucky for this situation and for us, I know that if Elizabeth gets the message, even part of a message, I know that she can figure things out. I know she will come up with a solution for it. I I feel very comfortable in just giving it to her and her figuring it out. But it's an important thing to remember, or at least realize, because Elizabeth pointed it out in hindsight as we're looking over this whole thing of what happened, that you want to make sure that the person that you're sending messages to understands how to work the message system. So with the email message, when it comes in, there's a link and you click on the link. Uh, when the, the page opens up, it's a map that shows you, uh, pinpoints exactly what the location where the person is. Also on that page is where you can reply to the text message, which I did. I could see an exact location where they were, but I could not see how to get into it. I wasn't sure which road I would take into it. Even though I'm familiar with the area, there are a number of roads up there, so I wasn't sure which road to take in. So we were able to communicate back and forth by messaging so that I could figure out exactly where it was that I needed to go. Once I was confident that I knew where I was going, uh, I let someone else know that I was going, and then I, I headed off up there. The one thing I found with the in-reach messages was replying to the phone was a lot easier than the emails because of the emails, if you don't reply to only the first email sent to you, the first email message sent to, you know, keep that page open and reply within that box, it doesn't send through the messages. So even though you get multiple messages coming in in separate emails, you have to go back to that first message and reply within that message. So the way the in-reach messaging works for email is that when you send the message from the in-reach, 
it goes through their system and sends out an email to the the end user. And that was Elizabeth in this case. She opens the email and it has a link on it. You click on the link, it opens up your browser and takes you to a web page. That web page has the map that shows our location. It has the message there and has a little window where you can respond. Now, the next time I send a message, the next message I sent sends her another email and she can open that email as well. But the problem is you have to go back to that original window to respond to the message for me to get it. And when things get hasty and and there's an emergency at hand, you're dealing with something, it's quite simple to forget and just respond to the email that you received thinking that that person that's in need is getting your response. In fact, they're not. When you put somebody in as your contact on your in-reach, that's the person that's going to get the message. You really need to ex- to make sure the person understands how to use it. That's really, really important because even though I'd, ha- I'd been on the other end of it sending messages, I'd never been on the receiving end. Anybody that we had messaged uh, while we were using it, we sent it through text messages. But I was not aware of how to use it. Uh, through email. So I think it's really important that if you're going if you're going to depend on this to help you in an emergency that you make sure that the people on the other end understand how to use it, how to reply. You're almost better off just to use text, aren't you? Uh, definitely. I think that would yeah. that just saves a whole bunch of whole trouble. Bunch of the other mistake that I found that I made was because I had been using the email uh, contact initially, I did not load the map onto my phone. I did not click that link on my phone to show me the map. So because I was heading up into an area with no cell service, only when I got out of cell service did I realize I did not have the map and I couldn't load it anymore at that point. It just says it's a fallback thing. I I had a pretty good idea where I was going, like I knew, but... Still, I, I did not something load the map. Consider. So that's something to consider is that you, you need to, the person should make sure they have the map loaded so they can refer to it. And they have the coordinates, etc. if needed, if they can't get in to give to somebody else. So each time you send um, something out from the inReach, you holding the inReach in your hand, it sends out your coordinates. So every one of those messages that comes in for someone should have and will have your coordinates from where you sent that message. That's really important stuff and it's worthwhile noting, having them write down the coordinates so that they can forward them on even to emergency services. And this was the great thing about the inReach. She responded and asked some questions about where we were and I described it because she'd been down there before um, a couple of times. So she sort of knew roughly where it was, but she was concerned about it because there's a lot of roads you can turn off on. Um, And she can actually tell us when she's ready to go and has gone. Right. So we know we had about 40 minutes wait. I sent, so that last message I sent to her, she responded and said, okay, I'm leaving. Well, that message never came through. Oh, we okay. never did get that message because that was one of the things that when you had asked me, what, is she leaving? And I, and I said, well, I think she's gone already, but I'm not sure because I didn't actually get a message. It might be sitting on the in-reach right it, now. It might be. <laughs> <laughs> be Something went wrong there with her sending that last message. Right. So that was a, that was a hiccup. Um, we did know she was coming. We uh, we got you into that comfortable position where you're, you're sort of leaning against the bike, semi-sitting. We supported your your foot up and everything. And we know that in the Jeep um, that Elizabeth is driving up, we have a first aid kit, a, a fairly good first aid kit. Yeah, you had a SAM splint. So we realized that instead of fiddling around with splinting me on the spot, we just stabilized everything with rocks. Yeah. So I couldn't move it. And yeah. everything was comfortable at that point. What, what was your thought process that then? Are, are you really concerned about the situation you're in at that point? No, no. 
No, I was, uh, I was just thinking, boy, I'm, I, I was uh, really uh, happy about having the inReach and continued the subscription. Sometimes if you imagine a scenario, it's easy to fool yourself into thinking, oh, well, I'm resourceful. I'll find a way to get out. But it becomes really apparent, for instance, in this case, with Brent with his broken leg, that's really difficult to get around because you've got this this foot that's loose and flopping around potentially at the end of your leg, which you do not want to flop around. It can do nerve damage and it can cut arteries and do all kinds of extra damage. So you can even just imagine dealing with trying to splint this thing if you're by yourself on your own. This, this somewhat, um, I guess I wouldn't say small problem, but somewhat simple problem could become a disaster or a real problem if you're there by yourself with no way to communicate with the outside world, if you're forced to get up and find your own way out. And, and I do think it's really interesting how you almost don't picture that you need it for your, for your own safety. You figure, well, I'll oh, find yeah. a way to get out. But with that broken leg that you had, would you have been able to get out? Oh, that's, yeah, that's... I mean, you'd, you'd end up crawling. You'd have to splint it. You'd have to crawl unless you could find some sort of uh, crutches. And as I found out now, you know, after being two and a half days in the hospital and then being instructed in 15 minutes how to use crutches, they take time to get used to. And you're, you know, you, you get sore. You're using new muscles. And you're using a stick probably. So you would have been out a long way, you know, and, yeah. and uh, hoping that somebody come in. And it's, tough, and it's easy to say you'd have to splint it and you'd have to find some crutches, but we're talking about a logging area. Like this place has been decimated for like logging on the West Coast. And the Coast other is aspect is when you, you've got something in the distal end of your body, out your foot, right? Yeah. And you're not going to be able to very uh, easily or effectively splint it yourself because yeah, you're bent down. over. Oh, you yeah. need another person for that to do it really well. So, you know, I might have survived fine, but one thing that happened with getting help so quickly and just leaving it alone and not moving was you don't you don't get soft tissue damage. Like I had full movement of my toes, no nerve damage. All it was was a snap of the bone and everything else was fine. You know, I'm able to still move everything else in the cast, which is great. So at one point then, we've decided we waited long enough for Elizabeth to get close. I was going to go and meet her to make sure that she was able to find the right road coming in. And um, basically, I left you for the wolves. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which you survived, and the wolves didn't eat you. Well, meanwhile, as you already heard, Elizabeth had got the message, got prepared, let somebody else know that she was going to do this, and then she headed up. Um, I got on the bike after waiting a, a certain period of time, which we figured would take her to get there. I got on the bike, and I rode out, leaving Brent there by himself. Before I left, I stabilized his foot. I gave him everything he needs there, uh, as far as clothing, etc., if he needed anything while I was gone. And I also left him with my spot, because I thought, you never know. I mean, something could happen to me as I'm riding out and then he'd be there. No one else would know, you know, so just for a backup, I left him with my spot. I took my cell phone. I took his in reach with me. We both had something and off I went. I met the Jeep. Um, Elizabeth got there at the end of the road, just about the same time I got out to the road. I parked my bike and I went back in. Now, the only other thing that, that we ran into was on the way out, I met somebody else who was coming in, just looking around, exploring. And I told them Brent was there and I wasn't sure if they could actually reach him. But I said, if you can definitely go there and uh, just make sure he's okay. It wasn't very long before we arrived with the Jeep. Then I drove the Jeep back in and we were able to splint up Brent's foot with what we had in the first aid kit. We got him loaded into the Jeep and then took him to the hospital. 
it took quite a while, but it was surprisingly fast, I think, considering the alternatives, if we had had to call search and rescue, etc. Before I left, luckily you have all your, your clothes and everything with you, um, as we do for, so you're prepared if you have to stay over. So we pulled all that out, your hat and everything. You were really prepared there with some good warm clothing, the stuff you needed right at hand. Yes. You didn't have to dig around or anything. Yeah, and the bag is, like I have a soft bag on the back and you took it right off and I could have pulled any of that stuff out while you yeah. were gone. It yeah. was all accessible to me. So. Yeah. so other than you getting eaten by wolves or a bear cougars you, you, or cougars, you were in pretty good shape yes. <laughs> at yes. that point yeah. to be left. Yeah, I did a lot of scanning. Yeah. Deconstructing an incident or an accident is a great way to learn things. What worked, what didn't work, what could be improved upon, what are maybe some other methods that you could have done. And that's something we did extensively here. And we found that the inReach was just fantastic for the type of rescue we had to do here. And it really gave us some confidence getting those messages back. I was just amazed. I think it went so smoothly. I don't think we could have improved it. Yeah. Uh, it happened about 3 p.m. We were on the 550 ferry, um, and when we got to emergency, it was empty. I mean, you can't get much better yeah, than that. that's true. There was no weight. They got the, uh, the, the x-rays, the boot off, and I thought that was going to be painful, and I was really surprised. We made a decision to leave my—I ride with hiking boots, and that's another story, but now I'm already <laughs> researching about, about boots. motorcycle boots you can walk in. Because the brake happened right at the top soft collar of the boot. Yeah. So if that's not obvious, it at least implies I need to look at safer footwear. You know, it, yeah. c- it could have been less, but who knows? But we both like to hike. We like to go mm-hmm. places and explore. So the problem, of course, is with a lot of the boots is they're, they're not very comfortable for walking. So we've survived for, so far and had successful riding, both of us, with hiking boots. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to question that now. And it's because of the accident. You don't think you'll ever have the accident. You don't think you'll ever use the inReach. But we did this time. So it, yeah. it, it changes, you turns your head around. But uh, yeah, it all went very smoothly. I don't know how we could have done it any better than that. But uh, the one thing I was mentioning is we left the boot on to stabilize it. And I think that minimized a lot of the swelling. And I think that now, because of that boot being, it was never painful. But it was on there snug. And of course, the foot was swelling a bit. I could move the toes all the time, so I just left it as it is. I think that reduced some of the pain involved because I never had any sharp pain. And mm-hmm. I talk to people now, and they're just amazed that it was sore, yeah. but no sort of grating pain, even when they removed the boot in the hospital. Mm. They said, get ready, and they just slipped it eyes. That wasn't bad, you yeah. know. So I've been very lucky that way. Yeah, because the, the boot on, what our thought process was control that swelling yeah. and the, the tissue damage That's that you, you get just from stabilize, it. right? Yeah. So and it was stabilized well, like we like you said we used a Sam splint on it, um, wrapped it up in a sort of a U shape and and bound Just it up. Just put it right over the boot. Yeah, yeah. it seemed to work very well. Yeah, so, so it all went, seemed to go very smoothly. I I don't know how we could have done it better. Like I think this thing for us really drove home, and I think we were both already on the same page anyway for this, and and we were we're sort of we can see the value in it, but the inReach does tend to be more expensive, um, but. I think they really pointed out the value of that two-way communication, of having that message come back. Yeah, it's funny because... You know, another thing to be mindful of in these situations is understanding and being very comfortable using whatever instrument it is you have, whether it's a compass, a GPS, or whether it's your satellite communicator. If you're not using it on a regular basis, if you don't have a lot of experience with it, when you are in an emergency situation, especially if you're by yourself... 
it could become impossible to operate. You may just totally draw a blank on how to get this thing to sync to the phone and how am I going to send this message. At that time, you may just want to press the SOS button. Now, what if you had to type out your message, forget the phone, so you just with the inReach, um, because that's likely what you would have done. You would have reached back, you, you unzip the inReach. Imagine what that would have been like in that state trying to get a help message out. Well, I'd say with either, you know, because uh, I hadn't used it for a couple of months. We communicated a couple of times over the summer. Right, yeah. And you've got to start up your phone, even if you use the phone. You've got to start up the phone. You've got to get the app going. You've got to get the in-reach going. You've got to make sure they're synced. So that's complicated enough if you're not feeling 100%. So if you just grabbed the in-reach and went at it, uh, it would be a slow process. Because when I first started the service, I went down to the beach here. I'm not far from the, the ocean where I live here. And uh, that's where I hooked it up. You have to make a call, and they send it back. And that's how you hook up and get the in-reach going. And uh, just typing with that thing was just, you know, you're constantly going back correcting because you, you for those who don't know what GPS is or this inReach, it, it's not a uh, regular cell phone keyboard. You move over a row and down two ranks and pick an S and then you go back to an A and maybe you hit the B when you did it. And oh, wrong one and back. It's incredibly yeah, slow. Then, then you you know, these units are great, any one of them, for giving us the ability to call for help should we need it in an emergency situation. But what's really important is no matter what unit you have, that you understand fully how to work it. And it's become a habit so that you can work it if you're in a stressful situation. Programmed in there. But still, dealing with that while you may be dealing with shock, while you may be, you know, um, stressed um, in incredible, intense pain. It's a lot to deal with. Now, the advantage is they do have a, an SOS button on there so that you can press that SOS button and call search and rescue, which I think may be your choice. You know, if you were in a stressful situation, if you, you know, you were really mangled up or something, you had a, had a real problem. But Well, if I was on my own Saturday, that might have been the best choice. Yeah, that might have been, yeah. So what can be learned from all of this? Well, I think a few things. First of all, I think you want to make sure that if you are using a two-way communicator, even the one-way communicator, using anything, you're putting someone down as an emergency contact, they need to know how to respond to whatever it is you're sending out. You need a plan. You need to make that up in advance and say, if you get this message, then this is what you're going to do. And this is how you respond to the message. This is how you use the interface, etc. The other thing is, is for yourself, that you know how to use whatever it is that you have. That, that goes for a GPS or a compass or anything. You need to know how to use it without thinking about it, without checking the instructions, because in a stressful situation where you're under duress for any reason, you're going to be hard-pressed to remember how to work it unless it's habit. Now, one of the other things is, is you want to consider the fact that you know, when you wander off into these remote places, you know, by yourself in particular, it doesn't take much to incapacitate you when you're riding a motorcycle. A broken wrist, a broken leg, even a, a bad cut, a fall, a bruise, it can make it so that you can no longer ride your bike. And when you've booted in there at, at uh, you know, 50 miles an hour for two hours, and then you've got to find a way to get back out and try and get a hold of something... Well, it changes the whole perspective, doesn't it? So you may well want to look at one of these emergency communicators, be it the spot or the inReach, something, because it's sort of like an insurance package for you. If something goes wrong, your insurance is that little button. And I'll tell you, at the time, I think if I'd said to, to Brent, you know, with his broken leg there, hey, if you want, I've got this device and it's going to cost you this much to press the button. 
I'm willing to bet he would have paid. If you're interested in seeing a few photographs we took while we were doing this rescue, drop by the website www.adventureriderradio.com and click on this episode and check out the show notes. going to take a break just for a couple of minutes, but don't go anywhere because we're going to be right back with Spencer Conway, who's trying to ride his way around South America. And while it hasn't been an easy trip so far, let me just say that. Well, I've got some news for you. The new Fall Winter Aerostitch catalog is out. Yep, hot off the press. You can order it from them or you can just download it for free right off their website. You can go there now. www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And of course, always use the forward slash ARR. I've told you that before. It gets you 10% off your order or if you're a repeat customer, it gets you free shipping on your next order. As we talked about on this episode, we've had record rainfall here on the coast. I mean, it has been pouring out. Almost every day that I'm out riding, I ride in rain. And after that broken leg incident you just heard, it was my job to retrieve Brent's bike that we left near the trailhead when we took him out and took him to the hospital. So when we left home in the morning, it was overcast. But by the time we reached the bike, it was sitting in a puddle with the rain pouring down. I rode back in torrential rain. I mean, it was just teeming down. And you know what? I was totally dry and comfortable in my Aerostitch Darien jacket and 81 pants. Seriously, this is not some advertising line. This is real world experience. I'm always warm and dry in my Aerostitch suit. If you want the same, drop by their website, www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, the end of the year is in sight. Oh yeah, and it's closing fast. We're mid-November right now. So now is the time that you got to start planning your next year's adventures. And if you're considering an adventure, a motorcycle adventure, I'm talking to the west coast of the U.S. or Canada, then you'll want to look at Tour USA Motorcycle Rentals. Tour USA is connected with PSSOR. And of course, you know PSSOR through Brett Tax, who's been doing our rider skill segments here. As a matter of fact, I think Brett's is... He's almost in Africa, or he is in Africa at this point. But in any case, you can rent a bike from them, but you can also get motorcycle instruction from them, which is a a good way to set things up. Because what you can do is you can arrange with them to get some instruction and then take that bike out and do your trip. I mean, if you consider the cost of flying your bike out or the time it's going to take to ride it out, you're probably going to find that rental is a good option. And also with Tour USA, because they're adventure riders, they equip all their bikes as we adventure riders want, you know, crash bars, skid plates. They even have Pelican case panniers on them. So go by their website, www.tourusa.us. See what they've got there as far as bikes goes and check out their rates. I mean, it's, it's really surprising that you can get a bike as inexpensive as that. So renting a bike may be a great way for you to have an adventure motorcycle vacation without it costing you an arm and a leg for next year. Check it out now, and I would book early, www.tourusa.us. And of course, always let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio.
Well, Spencer Conway says he was the first solo rider to circumnavigate Africa totally unsupported. And his documented trip was done with his, his video camera at the time. He didn't know, but um, afterwards, when he looked at it, he realized he had something good there. And it ended up being a six-part series called African Motorcycle Diaries, which aired on the UK Travel Channel and around the world, I think. And now, Spencer is off doing another trip. This time, he's riding around South America, documenting this trip for video, which will once again be made into another series for the Travel Channel. And I caught up with him sort of just a couple of months into his trip to see how it was shaping up so far. I'm with Spencer Conway, who is, uh, I think, in the sort of the middle of an adventure. Let's cut right to it, Spencer, because we've had some trouble connecting because of where you are. Good to have you back on the show. Oh, thanks very much. Yes, I'm, I'm in La Paz at the moment, um, in Bolivia, the highest capital in the world. Uh, I'm actually stuck here at the moment because I'm trying to get over some altitude sickness. Well, I saw on your post there that you're not going to make the border before your visa runs out. Uh, actually, I managed to get through Peru, um, and I'm in Bolivia, so I was four days late on the border, uh, but I managed to, unfortunately, I'm embarrassed to say it, but I managed to slip in uh, $20, and uh, they, they ignored it, and uh, they let me through. So I'm actually now in La Paz, but what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get to the road of death. Um, I don't know, have you heard of the road of death, Jim? Tell us about it. Oh, well, it's pretty impressive, but unfortunately, I'm, I'm at 3,700 meters at the moment, and um, I'm getting altitude sickness, sort of headaches, and I'm not riding that well. And unfortunately, I have to go over 4,700 meters, which is extremely high, uh, and that's to get to the road of death, which is one of the worst roads in the world that was built by Paraguayan prisoners, and um, they have 300 deaths a year. Wow. Okay, so what sort of perils yeah. are on the road? Well, basically, it's a dirt road that's been cut into the mountainside, and it's only uh, wide enough for a single vehicle. And on top of that, they've had quite a lot of rain. Um, so at the moment, they have closed that road, and they have an alternative road that they're using, but I've managed to get permission to go on that road. So I'm sort of building myself up, up to do that one next. Um, I did a, a similar road in Colombia, called the Devil's Trampoline, uh, and that's self-explanatory because people bounce off that road. And uh, I actually made that one, and it was absolutely fantastic. So this is my next uh, sort of step. I'm trying to hit the most, it sounds a bit ridiculous, Jim, but I'm trying to hit the most dangerous roads in each of the 13 South American countries, uh, not just for my personal feelings, but also, obviously, I have to admit it for my show as well. Let's just have a look at the overview of what you're doing. You're in South America. You're circumnavigating South America. You're producing a 12-part show uh, or 12-part series to be aired, I think, on the Travel Channel. Can you just tell us the whole overview of it? Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Well, as, as you know, um, I circumnavigated Africa solo, first of all. And uh, quite luckily, that was, a, that was a rating success. So now I've hit, um, I landed in Colombia, in Bogota, on the 3rd of uh, September. And I've been through Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, and now I'm in Bolivia. And then obviously after that, it'll be Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay, and then the small uh, countries, Guyana, French Guyana, Suriname, and then Venezuela. So that'll be uh, the total circumnavigation. I am visiting Bolivia and Paraguay as well, which are the only two landlocked countries. Uh, that's just because, you know, that's for my own personal thing, because I can't imagine I'll make it here again. 
and it just seems silly not to do all 13 countries. Um, but just to fill you on a little bit more, Jim, um, from Colombia to Bolivia, what I've just done is um, 4,100 kilometers, but it took me 10,280 kilometers because I don't use a GPS, I don't have a map, and I don't have a telephone. Hence the difficulty that you've had getting in touch with me. But uh, it makes it more fun for me. I get lost a lot, and you have experiences that you normally wouldn't. Well, really, that, that is uh, obviously something you're doing on purpose. It's not like you couldn't take a GPS with you. You couldn't get one. They're, they're easy to find, but you do that. It's for, absolutely on purpose. Yeah, you do it for adventure. Yeah, I do it for adventure, and I, I always find that um, when I hit these little dirt roads that I don't know anything about, things just happen. I mean, for example, in Bolivia, I saw this little track, and I uh, decided to just, oh, well, I'll just go for it. And I headed down. It was about five or six kilometers of really, really rough road, and I turned this corner and I came across this beautiful, beautiful beach. And it was like a local village. And they were so pleased to see me. They just said, no, you can camp on the beach. And they sorted out food for me. And when I was relaxing by my tent in the evening, all 200 of the villagers came down to come and see me. And they were shaking my hand and saying, thanks for coming. And it's those kind of experiences, you know, a one-off experience where other people don't necessarily go, and it's, it just sticks with you. It's just so fantastic. So it's not like a masochistic thing you do to say, hey, look at me, I'm going to go and make my trip even rougher. It's actually what makes your trip. I mean, this is really important because a lot of people talk about how technology changes the trip, and the reason you're not using it is not to make the trip harder for you. It's actually to make the trip. You've, you've, you've hit the nail on the head completely. I mean, for example, Travel Channel wanted to send out a sound engineer and a couple of cameramen and blah, blah, blah. And we had a discussion about it, and I said, look, I'd like to do it the same as the last series, do it really rough, do it on a budget, and do it solo, and camp as often as I possibly can, or stay in really, really cheap accommodation. And it's just, it's as you say, it's the way I like to do it, and luckily they agreed on that. So um, I've only got, I've got a camera woman with me, Kathy Nell, on occasions, uh, she does some filming, but generally it is just 100% solo. I just love it like that. So when you're filming by yourself, are you, you're having to stop somewhere and set up a camera and do all those sorts of things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I say to you I ride eight hours a day, it's not really like that because you spot something around a corner, you get off, you've got to set up a tripod, do a ride by, you know, ride away, set up different angles, hang it on a bridge, you know, just try and work out ways of, uh, of doing things. I've got a, obviously, I've got a handheld digital um, which I use uh, for sort of diary cams and that kind of thing. I've also got a, a GoPro um, that I'm not getting on with too well, but I'm, I'm giving it a go. Um, so, yeah, it's just sort of muddling around and, um, and trying to make the best of it. But it's, it's, if you've ever seen any of my other series, it's very unprofessional, Jim. <laughs> it's just one man and his camera, but people seem to like it. So I'm just going to keep it like that. Well, I think there is something about that, isn't there, rather than the, the polished look. I mean, knowing that it's, it's basically just you out there. But what is the speed like that you're traveling at? Are you, are you moving really fast? Or are you taking your time? It, it depends on where you are. You know, sometimes you hit extensive desert where it's like three, four hundred kilometers and it's very similar terrain. It is very beautiful, but I mean, from a filming point of view, you just do like a little bit of it just to show, you know, your friends and the, the people who watch it uh, to give them an idea of it. Um, whereas in other places, so much happens or the, the environment changes so much. So it's literally, it's, it's, it's day by day, you know, border by border. I just, I just judge it like that. What are you riding? I'm riding a Yamaha XT660Z Tenere. It's actually the same bike that I took around um, Africa. 
Um, I was offered uh, two brand new bikes. I, obviously, I can't tell you the, who they were because I turned it down. I just thought it would be kind of cool to try and get the same bike around um, every continent. I'm kind of regretting it at the moment because I've had uh, lots of problems. So have you had problems because of the bike design or just because you got a lot of miles in this thing? I mean, this thing went around Africa it, with you. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's because of the battering that it took in Africa. I mean, obviously, I overhauled it um, before I headed off, but things just happen. I mean, the the bearings on the steering column went, so I was riding like <laughs> with a stiff steering for a day, but then I managed to sort that out. Uh, my timing chain snapped, um, you know, flat tires. But you just, you just keep going and, and just you know, just keep fixing it as you go along. And every time I wake up and I look at that same bike, I just feel so happy, you know, seeing this battered, dirty bike rather than like a brand new, you know, posh machine kind of thing. It just suits me. I mean, I've got the same rucksack. I've got the same bags that I had in Africa. I've got the same tent. I, I, I just like it like that. Well, you're not only going around filming your series for the Circumnavigation of South America, but you're also raising money for Save the Children. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. I did it for my last series, and uh, raised uh, 475,000 um, pounds, which was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I was really pleased with that. Uh, my website's open at the minute if anyone's interested. So it's www.spencer-conway.com. And if, an, if anyone wants to donate to Save the Children on there, they're welcome to. I'm up to about 32,000 pounds on that at the moment. Yeah, uh, so that's the added bonus for me is to do that. Tell us a, a quick bit about Save the Children. Uh, well, basically, Save the Children help um, children who are in problems around the world, whether it's natural disasters or whether it's, you know, family problems, um, uh, if, you know, if they're getting abused, that sort of thing. But it, it is pretty much worldwide, and it is in South America, as well as in Africa, where I was before. So I just think, you know, each place that I go to, you know, just try and help out the local people as well. And then on top of that, with my show... I just hope I can show normal guys like us, you know, not Hollywood superstars with millions of dollars, that you can do it and you can do it on a budget and it can be tough, um, but it's worth it in the end. Uh, I'm t it's turning into a bit of a comedy of errors because I, just before I left to come on this uh, show, I tore my shoulder muscle um, doing weight training, trying to get fit for this trip. So I've been traveling um, with a torn rotator cuff the whole time. Then I got food poisoning and um, obviously I've had altitude sickness. I tried to get up um, a volcano in Ecuador called Cotopaxi, and I went from um, zero to 3,700 meters in three hours, and I got so sick that I had to get down. It was, it was pretty, pretty serious, and then uh, when I came into, obviously then I had all the bike breakdowns, and uh, the funniest thing was I came into uh, Bolivia just uh, yesterday, and I got bitten by a bullet ant. Have you ever heard of those? No. They are very, very unpleasant. Uh, if any of your listeners want to Google it, they'll have a laugh because it's supposed to be one of the most painful bites that you can have. I sat down by the side of the road to take a break, and uh, one of them crawled onto my stomach and bit me. I'm not joking. I, I jumped six foot in the air, and uh, it, it ends up your whole body starts burning. So that was another bit of fun. So, um, yeah, yeah, I had a bit of action, um, but uh, I, I like it. It's uh, character building, as they say. Very English of you to say, very, very unpleasant, <laughs> the bite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's because I've been, I'm actually from South Africa, but um, I've been in England for 20 years, so it's probably rubbing off it's on It's rubbing off. And you're doing all this, I mean, you're, you're out there, you're beating your body, really, doing this incredible adventure, and you're a teacher. 
Um, yeah, I, I am an English teacher and graphic design, but that's sort of um, gone by the wayside since my last series. Uh, because what I do now is I go around to a lot of bike shows and bike talks and, um, you know, motivational speaking and I'm writing books and stuff like that. So it just sort of by mistake, my career kind of changed. So I guess I'm an adventure motorcyclist now, which I'm unhappy about. It's very cool, though, because like you said, part of your thing is to show people that just the average person can do it. And, you know, someone who's sitting there looking at their teacher probably wouldn't expect their teacher to go off and do this sort of lifestyle. Exactly. Teachers and uh, lawyers are probably the least people who expect to do that kind of thing, hey? What trouble have you had up till now, aside from all the bites and, and physical abuse you've taken? Yes. No, absolutely. Strangely enough, almost nothing. The thing that I never, ever considered was this altitude sickness business, because um, it was never in my zone of thinking. And that has really nailed me a couple of times. And I told you about the first volcano. I also tried uh, another volcano called Tungarahura in Ecuador, that was even funnier. I got three quarters of the way up. There was no one else around. I was on my bike, and this huge alarm went off. And in fact, the alarm I ignored. I didn't know what it was. And when I got back to the village, they told me, oh, no, the, the volcano was becoming active. And that was uh, the alarm for the volcano. <laughs> so that was kind of exciting. Um, but no, uh, problems, none at all. I mean, um, I was. What, people warn you, don't they? I'm sure you know about all different places like don't go to Colombia they've had these problems etc my biggest problem in Colombia was being delayed by the army because they wanted to take photos with the bike <laughs> <laughs> not exactly a huge inconvenience for you no not at all they were all fantastic they are just so friendly um, but obviously each one of them there's eight twelve of them at each border post and um, they that you know they have to uh, jump on the bike and get a photo but, but border, border posts are also absolutely fantastic. I mean, on the, uh, on the Ecuador border, the first border guard I went up to, I was having a chat with him, and he said, uh, and you just wait a minute. And he headed off across the road, and uh, he stripped off naked and uh, got underneath this tree and had a shower. <laughs> I had to wait sort of half an hour while the customs officer had a shower. Um, I averted my eyes, obviously. And then I got through there to the other side, and when I turned up at the other border, I went into the customs office and I said, hello. And he said, oh, I'm very sorry, it's my lunch hour. And he just proceeded to disappear. Um, so he, he headed off to some nearby sort of Shabini-type bush restaurant. So I just followed him and I sat down and had a drink there and I secretly put my camera on and popped it on the table. So I've got a picture of a, a border guard stuffing his face while I had to wait for an hour. But I love these kind of things. It's, you know, it's, it's just great. Well, your series is shown all over the world. Uh, is it shown in South America? And are, is anyone recognizing you when you're approaching the border? Yes, I've been recognized a few times, which is kind of weird. I, I, I like to stay anonymous, but not as much as you think, because I don't do main roads, Jim. Um, for example, I'm sure you know the Pan American Highway runs basically the whole length of the West Coast, and it's the sort of most common route that people take, which I fully understand. But um in the whole journey so far, I've done 30 kilometers on the Pan American Highway. 90% of my riding has been on dirt roads and in the bush. And how far into the trip are you now? Uh, I'm, uh, I've actually only done two months, just over two months, and I've been given a year, which is absolutely brilliant because my, my African one was just a little bit too rushed because I covered 55,345 kilometers in nine months. And, um, yeah, I think it was a little bit hairy, a little bit too fast. 
So I'm, I'm, a, I'm kind of relieved in a way because uh, it gives me more time to soak up the culture and the people and also hopefully do some you know, nice filming that people will enjoy. Well, Spencer, great to talk to you again, and uh, maybe we can connect with you again as you get closer to the end of this trip. That would be fantastic, Jim, and thanks for all your support. You've got a fantastic radio station. I've been speaking with Spencer Conway, and you can find out more about the trip that he's on right now, this very moment, www.spencer-conway.com. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They have 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system, and it'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's www.CyclePump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, who you heard on this episode. That was the first time you heard her voice. And of course, thanks to you, the listener, for listening. Well, now, no excuses. Time to get out there and ride your bike. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. See you next week. Oh, wait. Don't forget, if you can, drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Click on the donate button. Your donations help fuel the show, and anything over $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you in the mail. Ride safe out there. I'm Elizabeth Martin. I'm Brody Barker. I'm Sonia Martin. And you're listening to Adventure Adventure Rider Rider Radio. Radio.